From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, this is A Sense of Texas. Here's your guest host, Cindy Bachover. Hi there. My name is Cindy Bachover. I am the Low Vision Consultant at TSBVI. Being involved and active in our community in whatever form we do that has been on my mind a lot this past year. So I suggested the topic of activism within our communities and bringing change that we want to see with Emily. And she said, Cindy, why don't you take this one? So I'm gonna do a conversation with Pat Pound and I hope that you hear motivation from what Pat's experience has been with activism. I was low vision as a child until I was about 14, and then I've been total since that time. And growing up in West Texas, there's a limited amount of resources. And so my parents were always involved in the community. They weren't necessarily politically involved, but they were always eager to take on leadership roles, whether it's booster club or scouts or whatever knowing that if people didn't do that, then there wouldn't be those things in a small community. I was in public school almost through the seventh grade, and I couldn't see the blackboards, but my mom worked as a secretary for the schools, and she, this is way before legislation existed about education, um, she talked them into writing on paper what was on the blackboard ahead of time. And that's basically my one accommodation that I had and uh, used successfully during that time. Came to TSBVI at the end of my, near the end of my seventh grade year. I went to the University of Texas and then changed to the University of Houston. Uh, my major was in math. As I graduated, what my first actual taste of, of activism came as I graduated. There was a situation where the federal government was holding up some money for what we know today is the Texas Talking Book Program. And it would have disappeared had that not been rectified. And it seemed unconscionable to me that people who were getting books didn't know this was happening, and all of a sudden the books could just disappear without them knowing it. And so there was a, a group locally in Austin that was a cross-disability group, meaning it had people with various types of disabilities. And we got together and sent out a letter to people who received the Talking Book Services, and they responded in spades. And legislators responded quickly. And consequently, the library services were saved, and they ended up having a a nice budget. That sort of whet my appetite for the fact that that you can get change and people will respond and legislators will respond, not always and not necessarily quickly. I had never really liked history or politics. I had learned those things in the classes where they were taught and mostly promptly forgot them. So <laughs> I had to go back and learn a bunch of stuff about Texas government as I got more involved. There was some national things going on in the sort of the same way where, and there were particularly coalitions like uh, groups of groups of organizations were getting together. Basically, they figured out that if we said word access and allowed it to mean a lot of different things, like it might mean 
books that I could read for a deaf person that might be an interpreters that I could understand, uh, for a person in a wheelchair it might be a ramp or a grab bar, a door they could open. Well, then it was a broader effort and we could work together and help each other out and end up getting more. And that was beginning to unfold on the, the federal level. And then in the late 70s, we began trying to mirror it on a state level. And so we began the Coalition of Texans with Disabilities. And then what was your role with that? Well, I was reluctantly the first president. I uh, There were many very talented people involved that I, I looked up to a great deal but nobody was willing to be president. And I didn't want to be president either, but there was incredible trust levels among people and they they didn't bicker and fight and they they truly wanted to work together. And I finally decided I would run for president and, and got it, obviously, because nobody else wanted it. <laughs> um, because I love the fact that people were so eager to work together. And that proved to be true. It's continued as the longest-running cross-disability group in the nation here in Texas? Yes, okay. correct. In the late 70s, that's when the Section 504 regulations were, were uh, set forth. And that was our first taste of getting some rights as people with disabilities. And that was all about places that received federal money. And so we began to understand how we could impact regulations that spell things out in ways that maybe we could get them to be ways we wanted them to be written. And then later, that was really a lot of the underpinning for developing the ADA, because we always knew we wanted it to be broader than just federally funded programs. Some may not be familiar with 504 as kind of the starting of ADA. Can you give a little summary? 504 was a part of the Rehabilitation Act, and it basically just said, if you give federal money, then you shouldn't discriminate against people with disabilities. And then it spelled out like what different parts of the government should do. You know, this agency is a lead agency and these other agencies. So they develop their regulations first and then the other agencies look at theirs. And, you know, we learned a lot from from all that effort. But we also learned, we met other people, we met other people nationally. So, you know, there was a lot more connection than there had been in the past between local, state, and federal disability groups. And that was very exciting. I, I'm kind of trying to picture you guys doing this through telephone. I mean, you think yes. of this. This is before Internet. This is where right. the mail service is what we depend and, on. And, and not only with telephone, but it was telephone that you had to pay to call long distance. And, and in fact, I remember in the early days of the coalition, there was a very generous state agency that loved what we were doing, and they allowed me to come to their offices after hour and use the 1-800 number to call people because they wanted to support what we were doing. And that was very useful because otherwise you had to write letters and send them. There was no emails. There was no computers. And calling, you know, cost money. So you didn't. That's how connecting happened then. And this was uh, not your day job, as you explained. No, this is not my day job. 
you gave an instance of like being out of your comfort zone with, okay, I'm going to run for president on the coalition. Can you g- uh, give an example of a discouraging instance that, you know, something didn't come out like you wanted? <laughs> I have kind of a funny one. I've long been involved in voting accessibility, and I guess I will be all the rest of my life the way it's looking these days, uh, which is fine, something I believe in. Um, There was once a hearing, and we had no laws about it in Texas in terms of accessibility of polling places. And so we proposed a bill. We knew legislators, and and they were, we found somebody to sponsor it and so forth. And at a hearing, one of the legislators before my turn came up, talked about, well, you know, I live in a rural county and we vote in garages. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. Garages are accessible. And so, um, but he, he had it as a reason for, you know, you're asking us to do things that we can't do. So when it was my turn, I said, well, you know, I was so excited to hear that you vote in garages because actually that meets the requirements of this bill. Well, you know, I was right. And he had a misconception, but to him, it embarrassed him. Yeah. And he made sure the bill got tabled and we got nothing else that session. I needless to say, I made friends with him <laughs> between sessions. I had two years to do it. So I made sure that, that uh, he understood that I didn't intend to embarrass him and that indeed um, the garages were, were a great fit. But uh, one of my other uh, disability advocate friends during that time, we had a phrase that we would always say, if we live long enough, we'll see our progress. And it's really true. It's not a quick game. Right. So right. you have to be willing to go the long haul sometimes to see see your progress. And sometimes you spend more time fighting against things than you do for things. And that that is something to celebrate just as well as what you may have wanted to celebrate. And I think what you had pointed out, what I've continued to hear, is it's about building relationships. Absolutely. Because you There's don't no know. doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And it's always true in a low-incidence, high-need disability, which blindness and deafness are, there's, there's a lot of need, but there's low numbers of people. And so it will continue to be true that people don't understand all the things we need. And and it's less true today just because of the media and the Internet and Twitter and so forth and so on. But it's still true. And and so we still need to, you know, be proactive in letting people know the things that we need. The problems were in 1970s. We're still hearing that. We're still seeing that and still well, battling that. Well, and we're that. seeing even the latest bills about voting uh, would make it more difficult to vote by mail, for example. So, you know, those are, they, they keep rearing their heads. So it's not, you, I think the other important thing is you, you, you come into a session usually with some proactive things, plenty enough to keep yourself and your organization busy, but you also have to pay attention to what the real world's doing, and, and you may not get to spend much time on what you came in with. Mm-hmm. That's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Yeah, your plan uh, becomes right. a different plan, right? Correct. Yeah. So 504 was kind of the focus by the early 80s. Where did the focus go from there? There was always a notion that we wanted ADA. Uh, we wanted national rights. And by the way, Justin Dart, who 
lived in Austin and participated in the, the local disability group that I was telling you about, he had a, a particular health regimen that he did that meant that he needed to be at home by 8 o'clock. And so he didn't come for a while because he didn't want people to think he was rude when he left. And somebody in the organization figured out that and basically promised him that she would explain to people why he did this and that he wasn't being rude. And he started coming and he wound up being the primary uh, force behind the the ADA. In fact, he did a, a trip around the country and visited every state in the country doing public hearings uh, attended by people with disabilities to demonstrate the need. The things I should mention on 504, the law had passed, but they decided not to to just sit on the regulations, which means it wouldn't have got implemented. There was going to be a White House conference on disability that spring, and and the federal government was funding a whole bunch of people with disabilities to come to Washington and tell them what they should do. Well, a couple of months before there was a sit-in about these 504 regulations, well, the federal government knew that, you know, here they were about to bring a whole bunch more people to to D.C. So they, they probably knew straight up that they had to do something about it. What the federal government couldn't figure out is we seemed to be able to get information to the media. And I wasn't part of that sit-in, but I had a lot of friends that were. And the way they were doing it is deaf people up in, in, you know, higher stories of these buildings in D.C. where they were sitting in had interpreters down on the street and they would sign through the window to them, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is, and, and the feds didn't ever catch on to it. Brilliant. So many years later yeah, and people yeah. disclosed the little stories. Mm-hmm. And then your role, you were still working at Chris Cole then? The ADA got passed during the time I was director. And so I knew that I would want to not be at Chris Cole, but to be somewhere in my work life that worked on implementation of this marvelous, new, wondrous law. And that's what I did, is that's when I moved over to the Governor's Committee on People with Disabilities, which is a wonderful opportunity. I went there in, I think, about 92, and I retired in 2008. So what's 16 years. Access has become something that people expect to be involved in in some way, and particularly in transportation, because I saw people be so lonely and so disenfranchised by the lack of transportation, not saying that we're there, because we're certainly not. and, And in the local group that I was involved with in Austin, we actually sued to get Austin to to start what's now Metro Access. When was that? How did that take uh, place? That was sometime in the 70s. (laughs) I kind of lose my years here. And we were actually very fortunate. We really didn't have the funds to, to conduct a federal lawsuit. But we got lucky because there was a a larger suit that was well-funded in Philadelphia. And the courts decided that they would put all the other cases like that on hold and wait for that big case to get settled. And it was a brilliant move. And Philadelphia won, and then the city just settled, which meant we didn't have to fund a lawsuit, which is a good thing, because we just kept our mouth shut and didn't let them know we didn't have money for our lawyer. Uh, But it worked. 
And so, you know, it's it's good to me to see people having a lot more access and being being included in the planning and more things. And I guess one of my really exciting things is to see the whole concept of universal design coming about. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Apple. <laughs> uh, to me, Apple is who set the bar, mm-hmm. you know, and they showed that you can build it right into a product. It just is going to live there and it'll live in everybody's phones or iPads or whatever, and they can use it or not. And um I didn't know that I would ever see, we all understood the concept. I never knew that I would see it actually embodied in a product in such a fine way as they did. And now there's broader movements for us to be involved with. There's stuff about accessible cities that that isn't necessarily a disability movement, but you can insert disability stuff into it. Livable communities was something that AARP was involved in quite a bit, and I—that's kind of my natural uh, way of looking at things because you know that way it's a broad number of people who are involved, and you get to impact their attitudes as well as some of the policy. You know what we found is when you make something more accessible, it's not just helping those with disabilities; it's a benefit to, you know, the wider Everybody. population across. Everybody. We keep seeing that demonstrated. So Right, right, yep. And we keep having to show people that that's that, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's still true. It hasn't become untrue. Could you say a little about open doors? That may not be familiar to a lot sure. of people. Sure. Um, is, well, I knew of open doors because they did the only stuff I've ever seen about real data about travelers with disabilities. And that was an area I was very interested in. And I used their data a lot. I quoted their data, and I used it in stuff I wrote. And then when I was on the National Council, we met in Chicago. And I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, oh, I could meet them if we asked them to speak at our meeting. So we did. And I did. And I became friends with them. And then I let the director know that I would be retiring from my state job fairly soon. And I noticed that they didn't have blind people involved with their efforts. They were cross-disability, and they cared about the issues, but they didn't have any any point person. And I didn't want a full-time job. I just wanted, you know, some some work. And so that's what it's it's been a wonderful relationship. So I've gotten to impact airlines, airports, hotels, service animal issues all kinds of stuff. Um, They do a conference every couple of years with airports and airlines, and that also led to my involvement on the uh, United uh, Advisory Committee. So, you know, I've gotten to be involved in in all those kind of things. And I I send them stuff on Twitter like I do you and others, and and then as we developed our stances on, for example, the recent service animal changes in airlines, we developed ours and got them out early so if people wanted to join with us or say similar things they could um so it's been a fun uh, relationship they're a very small nonprofit, but they're very uh active and they're very respected in the travel industry uh, a lot because of the data that they have and the way they do things they don't do it they don't do sit-ins and they don't do and, you know, they don't do legal actions, et cetera. Uh, they do a lot of training 
on, for example, stowing of, of uh, wheelchairs and walkers and stuff on planes because they get broke a lot that way. Um, but they also offer a lot of, of ways to, to make things better. So they're a part of the solution uh, as well as pointing out the problems. Uh, so it's been a wonderful retirement uh, activity. So what advice would you give to young people who want to see change? Be involved. First of all, vote, and vote in an informed way. Get resources, look at different resources, so you're getting information from a, you know, a wide variety of types of resources, and, and figure out what matters to you. And most people think the federal level is you know, the, the place to impact, which it's great because you get a lot when you get it, but really your greatest power is on the local level. So get to know who's running for city council. Get to know, you know, how all that works. I can't tell you how much I learned that I didn't really want to learn about local zoning because I was stuck waiting for my issue to come up and not having transportation or, you know, the ability to sneak out and go have dinner somewhere, you know. Uh, but I sat through a ton of hearings and things about issues that I didn't care about, but unbeknownst to me, they were certainly giving me a broad knowledge. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.